This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Well, shalom and welcome to Practical Spirituality here in Asia Torah in the old city of Jerusalem, overlooking the Temple Mount. The Temple Mount. And the reason we always mention overlooking the Temple Mount, not the Kotel, is because the Kotel is like is like an icon for the state of Israel. Now, it is spiritually the place where all the prayers go up. The, it says that the, the, the pre, divine presence never left. After the destruction, it, the divine presence never left the Western Wall. And so it is really a, a, a funnel of our prayers up to heaven. But the, but the I guess it's the outer part of the funnel, the inner part of the funnel is the Temple Mount. And so... We, we remain uh, very focused today on the Temple Mount. The Kotel is not our interest that much. Uh, our interest is in the Temple Mount. And I know that's politically incorrect to say that, given that there's a giant mosque up there. And, and you know, uh, and the big gold dome and everything that sits over the Holy of Holies. And that's not, like, politically correct to be focused on that because it upsets Muslims and it's, it obviously upsets the uh, secular government officials to be to be fixated on the Temple Mount. But but if you're someone who adheres to the prophecies of Judaism, which, you know, is meaning you're Jewish, but if the prophecy, if the if you're someone who's aligning yourself with the prophecies, so then you take the Kotel a little bit less in your, you, you remove it a bit from your vocabulary and add Temple Mount, like just splice in the word Temple Mount from now on. You know, and, the, and our rooftop looks overlooks the Temple Mount. And that's very important to go see the the Temple Mount. Much more than it's much more important than going to the Kotel would be to go up to our roof and see the Temple Mount. And the Kotel was like was a non-entity uh, during Temple times. The, the Temple was the focus, not not the Kotel. And uh, but there's another thing, and that is that Jews generally take things all the way. You know, we're we're. Jews are not the type of people who stop halfway for stuff. We go all the way. And, and, uh, but in this particular case, the vast majority of Jews, I would say in the 90% plus, um, have, have kind of bought the narrative, you know, that this is the status quo and this is life. And, and they, they've bought into that narrative, and, and which is a little strange for Jews because Jews are generally in most fields pretty radical they're pretty radical in finance they're pretty radical in in uh, design they're pretty radical in, uh, in high tech they're pretty and they they Jews like push boundaries everywhere they can except for here and um, and it could be there's different reasons for that one of them might be all the anti-semitism we suffered meaning meaning uh, we're all just a little bit of PTSD as Jews uh, we've been through hell at the hands of the Gentiles and and maybe since we got to the Kotel, we're like, seems quiet. <laughs> Let's not mess with anything. No. And so everyone's agreed on this. But it's not just the state of Israel decided on this and the Muslims have agreed on this. But even the rabbis have agreed on this. Like most rabbis are not very Temple Mount focused. And the... Uh, and. You know, I imagine they. Um, I imagine they're just not raised as mountain biking surfers from California, who, you know, I didn't become observant to hang out on a, at a retaining wall. You know, sorry. You know, I transformed my whole life to be here, and 
it certainly wasn't to be hanging around a retaining wall. Okay, they, I don't, I don't like retaining walls. Sam, do you mind giving this couple a table for two and sit with two of you? Table for two. We even have crackers for you. <laughs> Chairs a little gut, missing a screw, so be careful. Of well, look at that lovely couple. <laughs> anyway, but you can understand, being from my background, it's like, you know, the Kotel's cute and sweet. It's cute and sweet, but, you know, that's, that's not where I want to stop. I, I, that's where I want to start. And speaking of walls in general, the, the, and I haven't spoke about this in a while, but I, so I'd like to speak a little bit about it, is, is that is that walls in general are, you know, they're real things. You know, like like there's there's a wall here, and and if I uh, you know bang into it, and I bang into the wall, so now I have a pretty good sense of my space. You know, now I can like use use this area because I got a I got a sense of that space behind me, and and it's a real wall, and that's that's good. What happens in life is is that people have walls placed, put in place. Um, sometimes by society, usually by mommies. Sometimes even by fathers with an exceptional amount of fear in their hearts. And uh, but what happens is people like to place walls where they don't exist, and they think they're protecting their children, but they are doing their children a disservice. Why? Because their children don't understand the geography of their world. And that causes them to be afraid as well, well before fear should should strike. So just to give you an example, if you, um, you know, I've never drawn drawn it before, but let's say this is the geography of the situation and you're here and you have been given a, a world that you think the geography is still here. You understand? You think that's the edge there because that's what your community said or that's what your parents said. Someone, someone told you the edge was there. And, I, I, oh my gosh, there's an amazing movie about this, I just realized. Is the Truman Show. Is, is, this, is this, this is the Truman Show. One of the great, great movies ever. And uh, anyone who who, uh, you know, obviously there's people who are not interested in watching movies at all, but there's a short list of movies to be watched that's a mitzvah, and that's one of them, is the Truman Show. And the, anyway, so this person really thinks that this area is what's available, and, but here's the issue, is that everything outside that area, what I would do for a red pen right now, I don't think we have a red one. But I, I'll, I'm pretty sure it's, these are not working pens. Someone must have taken them out of the graveyard. But let's see. Let's see if one of these works. A little bit. So that whole area, this, this whole red area outside there is the actual geography of things. And, but here's the amazing thing, is that if you're told that this is the world, and, 
and then you find yourself as life. You know, God has a great sense of humor. You know, he he's really good at getting you outside there. And what happens is the second you step outside that border, how are your instincts? Well, before I ask that, how are your instincts anyway when you're scared? Now, you're, you have better instincts or worse instincts when you're scared? We have better instincts. Worse instincts. I have better. Depends. Let's say you're in the jungle and you see a snake. You're not going to have really good instincts because you're going to be alert. That, that's, that's right. But, but what, if, what if there's a right answer and a wrong answer for a mugger with a gun? Oh, yeah. What you, how are you going to do there? <laughs> yeah? Like your instincts shut off in fear as far as like the immediate like get away from a snake your instincts are pretty good with fear but when when it's going to require you know a response your instincts are probably going to be pretty lousy this happened uh, in an interesting story I I was with a Hasidic family at a park in near outside Tel Aviv a place called Gani Yeshua and there's a big pond there at the park and the and the, where we were sitting on the grass, we were about maybe 15, 20 feet from the pond. It was our family and another Hasidic family, which means there were about 48 kids. <laughs> just kidding. There were, but there were a lot of kids. And we each had a two-year-old. We each had a toddler. And they had a two-year-old girl, and we had a two-year-old girl. And the, and the pond was like a two-foot drop, and then, you're, and then it's the pond. And the... The, the Hasidic family that we were with, they had to keep an eye on their two-year-old, but at all times, like the two-year-old, and the two-year-old kept almost falling into the pond because the two-year-old had lousy instincts because the two-year-old had been told for many, many years, meaning number two, they've been, <laughs> I was thinking, it's a big family, and there were teens, they've all been told for many, many years that the edge was, I'm, this is liberal, for this particular Hasidic family, where I put the edge here in the blue, is liberal. For where they were told the edge was. So the kid had no instincts and almost fell in that pond so many times. Now, meanwhile, our two-year-old was there the whole time. She never, she was right near the edge the whole time, never fell in once or even got, like, because her instincts were really on for near the pond. I mean, I don't, I don't know how good they were when she was doing somersaults on the grass. But once she got near that pond, she was, like, tuned in big time, that she was near a substrate that was not within her realm because she knows she doesn't swim and she's certainly not suicidal. And so so the, um, so the they had to uh, assign two of their older kids to be with their two-year-old at all times while we were just enjoying the park the whole time. And finally their exhausted assigned kids came to us and say, how can you just let your two-year-old run around with this body of water right here? At which point I said that this, my child is not suicidal. She knows she cannot swim. Have you seen her almost fall in at all? And they're like, nope, she's never close to falling in. <laughs> and, and she's got killer instincts. Because you know, we never taught our kids that there was an edge other than the actual edge. And, and we don't always know where the edge is because we're, we're mortal parents. We only, we only have our own limited view. And so... We know that when you meet the edge, whoa, it hurts, you know. And we're willing to let our kids get hurt a little bit so that they'll have great instincts because that's the only way you develop them. 
the way you develop instincts is you got to get your boo-boos. And you got to develop that. With the exception of one thing, one boo-boo you never, ever should get is the heart. Meaning, meaning you never let your kids get involved in, in, with treacherous relationships. And as much as we wish we could protect our girls and boys from high school relationships, which, of course, you can't protect them. and They get their hearts broken a little bit, but it's nothing compared to the, the, the things that go on in secular high schools where people's hearts... I mean, by the time those people get married, you know, you're, you're, you're marrying someone with, who's like a war veteran. And so... <laughs> so when it comes to the heart then it's worth putting a lot of, like, really bring it in. Keep the, only allow your kids the relationships that are trustworthy. And again, you can't protect them from the, the stupid stuff that happens in high school with their, you know, it, they obviously are, we're gender-specific high schools, but still, yeah, they, you, you get in, in these deeply loving, you know, relationships with your friends in high school. And, and, and it, you know, it goes wrong here and there, or you never know what's going to happen there. And then their their hearts are broken. And I to, I give my daughters I've always given my daughters a speech before they start high school: don't give your heart to anybody in high school. And I've had mixed reviews from my kids about getting that speech. <laughs> Some have told me that it made their high school life lonely; <laughs> that they would have rather loved and lost and had deep relationships. Some kids said that they weren't able to do it, that they anyway got sucked into deep relationships. Um, I don't know what to do next because I have a daughter starting high school. And I've had such mixed reviews on this. See, the beauty of, uh, the beauty of having lots of kids is you get years and years to get it right Whereas in the secular world where everyone has, you know, the major maximum of two kids. So two kids is not possible to get some of that. That's why you'll notice a lot of third kids in families, you know, there are families who stretch and get three kids. You'll notice those that third kid is an actually pretty well adjusted child. Third kids do pretty well. Because what happens, the first kid's raised. I mean it's just weird what parents do to their first child. First of all, like if it's a boy, the fathers think they gotta tell their son everything about the world. I don't know what's going on with the fathers. Like, they think, what if I die? So, I better tell this kid, like, everything there is to know. Meanwhile, you look at the, when the, when the camera goes on the kid, he's, like, three and a half years old, just going, like, and, uh, and then your second kid, your second boy, you're just, like, I think I'll spare him the details, you know, like, and see it do much for the first kid to over-inform him. And, but we way over inform our first children and, and the, uh, but the other thing is we all have dreams of being parents and what do we do we act out our dreams on the first kids but the fir- sorry the first kid but the poor first kid is not some dream of, parent- of your parenting that first kid has a, a way about them that needs very specific parenting but they don't get it because the parents are too busy applying their dream on the first kid so what do they do? The second kid's born, they do the opposite. I mean, when you see something doesn't work, try the opposite. Except that ki- that's also a formula. And kids, there is no formula for raising children. Because every child is its own entity. And so 
by the third kid, the parents now are starting to put up the white flag of surrendering to the fact that they have no idea what they're doing. And then they now there's much more exchange between the parent and the child for the third kid. Uh, like just trying stuff and seeing how that takes and, and moving from there. And what happens, you get better and better and better as the kids come down. Meaning the, the likelihood that your younger kids are going to be much better adjusted human beings is much higher than these two experimentals. So the, two, the first two children of every family are really just experiments. And this is why God wanted us to have big families is because he just doesn't want the world populated by experiments. <laughs> but what happens in the secular world is the entire world is populated by experiments because, you know, ever since the late 60s, everyone stopped having a bunch of kids and, and, uh, and now it's just, you know, it's an entire society built out of experiments with, you know, really crazy parenting. And, and you, can have, you can be a really crazy parent Parents do crazy stuff. I mean, there's some really bad parenting going on out there. And, and, and there's the good ones, by the way. The good ones, because, I mean, think about, it. think about it. Let's say you're a good secular parent. And then you take your kids to Jerusalem. And you spend the day with Rabbi Yom Tov. And I get to watch with my microscopic eyes from a, a society here in Jerusalem where parenting is like, that is your top ten priority list. Like, making a living is eleven on the list but parenting is the top 10 and, and, and it's big families and they're helping my wife and I raising our kids to show us how things are done right and, and you know I understand and then I'm meeting these, this family from Phoenix, Arizona with their 2.1 kid raising their kids in the most random way and, and no wonder they're like blowing up Walmart you know the 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 parenting is insane, and you know it's, uh, there's some really, really lousy parenting going on there. But if you have lots of kids, you get a chance to get it right, and that can spill over on the bigger kids too. Later, I mean, the dam- what damage was done is done, but you can let that spill over on the older kids because when the parents finally get their act together and how to be, you know, good parents, so then. It can then that those same lessons can be applied to the older kids, even though you know whatever was done was done for the younger kids. Now, what happens is people have very little instinct when they come out of here. Just like the two-year-old in the story, she didn't have a lot of instinct for the edge of the pond. And uh, anyway, so they came up and they said, "Aren't you afraid your daughter's going to fall in?" And I said, "You know, no, I don't." I'm not afraid at all that she's going to fall in. And, and then uh, I said to them that there's enough to be afraid of in the world. Our children don't need us to add any extra fears into them. At which point their 16-year-old, you know, this Hasidic blonde boy, looks over at me. And he's like tears welling up in his eyes. And he says, my mama put all her fears into me. <laughs> And then the Hasidic mama goes. <laughs> that means you're crying in the Hasidic <laughs> And uh, the mama goes like this. And then that, and that boy, that 16-year-old boy, had to go find where the walls were. And he really did. He left the country, now lives in America, and uh, had to go through a lot of stuff. A lot of stuff. 
but he had to find the contours of our world. He had to go discover them. And today he's he's in his thirties and he's a powerhouse, absolute powerhouse, and uh, runs a marketing company and and various other things. And and he's a, he's a powerhouse, but he only became a powerhouse when he got all his scrapes and bruises and bumps, and, and then and then he his confidence and instincts built. He was able to, to make a difference, and and that's why it's so important um, to. That's why it's so important to take a road trip. You know, you got to take a road trip. Uh, when I was raised, I had my brother Sam over here, and uh, Sam, maybe you come up, say hello to everybody on the live feed, especially. You got so many fans. We have so many fans in. <laughs> Maybe you even have a song about adventure oh, of some sort. That's so cute. Wilderness song. Wilderness song. Wilderness song. Wilderness song. That's a nice song. So my brother is like super adventurous, and but super adventurous. And our parents, because we were raised in such a safe environment that we they never told us there was anything dangerous anyway. And so, and there were no rules, so we just pushed all limits. And and he more or less raised me. And but. But like one example was, I was supposed to fly to Europe, buy a Eurail pass, and just go from country to country for and for like I don't know how long I was gone, like a couple of months. Or, mm-hmm. And I remember going landing in Norway. I flew into Norway, mm-hmm. and then I was going to make my way all the way to Portugal and and through all the mid mid European countries as well. And I did seventeen countries. But it was all your fault, and I was actually a little angry, and just because, just because I I wasn't that excited to hang out with Scandinavians all of a sudden. And I was only I don't even know how old I was. Eight. I was probably twenty or something. They're so friendly. People from Norway. Yeah. Yeah. Once you're in their home, good luck getting in their home. Anyway, I'll never forget the first. I was playing on the streets, music and just to kind of pay for everything and and uh, so I was playing and I the the Norway whatever to the dollar was this insane um, and it was an insanely different currency <laughs> so I I played for an hour people were throwing money in the whole time and then I collected all the money and I went to a changer and said what's this in dollars and they were like uh, that's about uh, $80 <laughs> yeah, for like eighty bucks an hour. <laughs> Whoa, like I'm looping. So anyway, so I instead of a, this is just maybe too telling about my character. Any other person in the world would go back and start playing on the street. To me, that meant let's go have a beer. So so I went into a pub to have a beer. And I go enjoy, down this no, no, you no, no, you're on. And so I have my beer, mm-hmm. and thinking about how wealthy I'm going to be, just playing on the streets of Norway and they bring me the bill and the bill was like $40 (laughs) (laughs) the rest of the story is I probably shouldn't (laughs) anyway but I had to go figure it out it was lonely and it was it was pretty painful but it was important what do you have to say about adventure well, I went to Europe, and I had a two-month URL pass, like the one I encouraged you to do, and I had a blast. <laughs> and I met great people, and I 
I don't know. Played all that frisbee and hiked and biked and uh, made friends. And I traveled alone so that I would have a spiritual need to be with other people. Because I find that when you travel with someone else, you're kind of busy with that other person and you're not as needy. So it kind of forced me to meet people and be out there and have the experiences of the locals' perspective rather than just be a lost American. Mm -hmm. I developed a formula over there so when I landed in a city, I would put my backpack in a walker Mm -hmm. in a train station Mm -hmm. in the morning, and then I would spend the whole day with the locals. And almost every single time, they took me in. Right. And it would be about bedtime around 10, 11 at night, and I would say, it would be like, where's your stuff? And I'm like, it's at the train station. And it was great. I mean, it wasn't like it was at some hostel or some other place. It was just at the train station. And we'd go to the train station, and I'd pull it out, and I'd spend a week or two or three in, in some home where the parents were probably in the south of France. And it was just a party. Nice. No. So, um, do you have a song about adventure? What was that wilderness song? Well, I wrote a song when I was 12 on a backpacking trip. I think that's what he's talking about. And uh, I started writing songs when I was about seven. And by the time I was 11, thankfully, my aunt put me in a recording studio. And I got to make my first album. And um, this was... Uh, so, yeah, I must have been around 11 when I was on this trip writing this song. Because it was one of the last songs. And it became the tablecloths for my bar mitzvah. My father had them screen printed on tablecloths. And that was our... It was the actual music written. Like it looked like some a pianist would be staring at. But I fell in love with the mountains, and I would backpack every summer, and yeah, find out the edge of the universe in a very tactile way by exploring and climbing and whatever. We just came from the wilderness. We did. That's why I'm feeling kind of woozy right now. Me too. You too. We have a little sunstroke. Yeah, I got seriously sunstroke. It's hot. It's hot for just walking from mountain biking in the mountains for Mid-day. hours. Beit it's called the house, house of the Sun. There is a house in New Orleans. Anyway, that's not the song I was going to sing. That's an HMS song. Something I wanted to say about mountain biking yeah. is um, if you think about us mountain biking, they, there's an order. We're trying to keep our bikes on the trail, which is the order. Um, there are a lot of rocks, especially in Israel, and and obstacles and things you have to get across. Those represent chaos. And the ultimate chaos would be if, if you didn't choose the proper line, you may really find chaos, which would be flying off your bike, which is, of course, the challenge of mountain biking is staying, you know, vertical and not winding up, you know, strewn across the trail. And that represents chaos. And the, the, the order that gets put in the world, there's a real order that God makes, and there's an order sometimes that parents will make, or society or community will make, but they, that represents order. Our parents are trained to teach us the world of order, and, and you never grow from order. You need order in your life, but you'll never grow from it. There's no growth in a world of order, and there are certain people who are so afraid of growth that they, they are addicted to order, but order's not where growth happens. And what's funny about it is if you're like most people, you're probably addicted to chaos. Like most people are addicted to chaos. Like what happens when a millionaire makes a million dollars? Does he put it back on the table and take some big risk and then he can't sleep at night? Does that sound like order or chaos? 
Chaos. It's chaos. We're addicted to chaos. We love chaos. Kids love chaos. They love to dance. Think about moving your body when you're dancing. You're, you're, you love chaos. That's just not it. Can you imagine the way you would dance to a wild song? Can you imagine walking down the street to that step? Who would just be like, that's the most chaotic person ever. But we like voluntarily move our bodies chaotically on dance floors because we have a, we love chaos. And so we're both surfers as well. And the wave is in perfect order, but the white water, you know, where it's breaking, that's total chaos. And our job is to play around that spot of the wave. If you go too far out on the wave, it flattens, kind of flattens and you lose your speed can't surf out there. you got to keep yourself as close to the chaos as possible. That's where the wave's steeper and where the, the surfing takes place, right between order and chaos. Mountain biking is order and chaos on the sides of the line that you choose. And so, so, so much music, music is order and chaos. There's deep science and math in music. You know, he's a recording artist, so, so you watch the screen like you literally see where the end of each measure is, you're watching it visually and seeing the music line of the, let's say you're recording a horn player, you're seeing his notes. And, but he's really improvising. Is that order of chaos when the trumpet player's improvising? Which is it? Chaos. It's chaos. And we love that. We love that. And sometimes you'll, you'll go to a symphony where the orchestra is too Japanese, if you will. You know, meaning it's just too much order. Sorry, Japanese friends. Yeah. It's too much order, because they're very orderly and as musicians. They're, they, have the, they really have some of the best chops. Can I explain chops? Technical ability. Technical ability. They have uh, the best chops of anyone in the world. But anyone would prefer, over, over a person like that playing violin, Anyone would prefer, who is that famous Jewish? Pinchas Zuckerman. Pinchas Zuckerman. Like Zuckerman. Pinchas Zuckerman, where they're going to introduce a certain level of chaos into the order of it, and we are, we're going to more appreciate hearing that same piece played by someone who's willing to, uh, to give their own, uh, uh, how do you call it, rendition, their own treatment, interpretation, interpretation, and treatment of the work. So this is all about order and chaos, and, and this area is chaos. This is the order, and we, we need to go check that place out to get anywhere. And when you're in that moment of mountain biking or surfing or whatever, the world's coming at you so fast that your focus has to be so intense. You, re- you start to become super instinctual, and it puts you in that zone. That's that joyful place of everything's very real and present, not premeditated, not orderly, because you're... In, in that flow, which is exciting. At one point, one of Yom Tov's sons is a bird watcher, an avid bird watcher, and he's really obsessed with it. He's 15 years old. And I saw two colorful birds take off from the bush as I zoomed by. And I was trying to make a mental note of what their colorations were so I could have explained to Moishi what I saw. And for that moment, I almost flew off the trail. Because there's rocks everywhere. I mean, you really don't even have a moment to be out of focus, mm. to be on that edge. Mm. Anyway, this is the wilderness song that I, I was 11, so, you know, of course, bear with me here. 
A place that is untouched by man is the most beautiful there could be. Where man and nature go hand in hand, it's been experienced by me. The rushing water makes me feel power, the mountains give me pride. I'm relaxed by the wind and flower, I feel joy deep down inside. The love the wilderness holds for me, no one else can supply. Just being there makes me happy, I will feel it till I die. The love the wilderness holds for me, no one else can supply. Just being there makes me happy, I will feel it till I die. Do another song. Beautiful. You should do a band for us sometime. Oh, I'd love to. You know what you gotta do? What do I gotta do? You have to do the um, the hang gliding song. Mm. That's I think right on the t- on this subject. Do you remember it? Of course. Okay. Do you remember? I don't know. I haven't sung it since I was in college. <laughs> <laughs> well done. I I have to be the redactor of all of his content. <laughs> I know more of his songs than he does. <laughs> you know that one though. That was recorded on. When you it was at that point. So I saw him fly. Yeah, I remember. I saw him floating. Want me to try it? Right. You know the words? Yeah, I think I can do it. Come. Cool. Right. Uh, maybe I can even help you. Okay, good. That'll be nice. I don't know. I'll just set it up. I went to University of Colorado Boulder. I started at Berkeley College of Music in Boston, and I was studying music day and night. Um, but the school was missing a few things. Number one, any subject other than music. And I was curious about the world, and I wanted to be a Renaissance man, and realized that was not the place to do it. And it also had no women in the student body, and that was also something I was not excited about. <laughs> there were three women in the entire student body, and all three played flute. Yeah, it's like when we go to jazz concerts. Correct. The audience is all boys' club, but that's changed. I mean, nowadays things are much different. Anyway, I transferred to Boulder, Colorado, so I could ski every other weekend and do a lot of hiking and mountain biking. And after one of my hikes, I was on top of a mountain overlooking the city. If anybody's been there, you know about the Flatirons, these amazing mountains just come arising. It's the foothills of the Rockies, and they arise out of nowhere. It's quite spectacular. And whooshing just feet over my head uh, was a hang glider. He'd just taken off, I guess, at the top of Bear Mountain, so I was right, right below the flight path. And... It shocked me, and then it was so beautiful, and I realized the beauty of living on the edge and of taking calculated risks. We're not talking about throwing your life away, God forbid, and not being careful with this gift we've been given of our body. You know, do we want to keep our neshama and our, our soul and our body intact, of course, but to, to be in that place of uh, excitement and uh, living on the edge. I never did hang glide, by the way. I almost did the other day. I was riding my bike on the bike path, and you know, down by Manhattan Beach, there's free hang gliding. If you, you know, you get your first. I didn't do it, but I wanted to do it just to say I did. Mm-hmm. Anyway, this is that song. Okay, let's see if I can do it. I saw him flying. 
I saw him floating away above my head, way above my head. Big lazy circles, arc of a flyer, with nylon wings instead, with nylon wings instead. With life and death, a mere updraft away. The best part of life, best parts anyway. I saw him fly, I saw the only way to live my life. I saw him soar so high, and now I know I can fly too. I just can't do it any other way. I have one lifetime when I am halfway through. I do not want regrets. I do not want regrets. <laughs> what was going to rhyme with regrets? All wets. All right, forget it. What? I saw him fly. I saw the only way <laughs> to live my life. I saw him soar so high, and now I know I can fly too. I just can't do it any other way. Wow. <laughs> There are no stepping stones. There is no free ride. I have to find myself. I have to climb myself. I have to climb myself. The road gets rough, but sometimes bruises pay. The road is tough, but sometimes bruises pay. I'll fly until that updraft comes my way. I saw him fly. I saw the only way to live my life. I saw him soar so high, and now I know. I can't fly too. I just can't do it any other way. <laughs> Probably the reason I remember his stuff better than him is because if he was, you started college at 17. Yeah. So let's say you were 18 when you wrote that, perhaps. Mm -hmm. So I would have been six. No, Glenn. I would have been 12. 12. Yeah, <laughs> but I'd have been this twelve-year-old, totally impressionable kid, mm -hmm. hearing this music coming out of him all the time. You understand? Like twelve, having this brother it was like that. Those songs are gonna lock in forever. I was thinking that we should do um, tonight because you'll have a keyboard as well mm -hmm. to do uh, the Shavar Brachos, the the song you wrote for John and Nancy, that really complex one. Mm. Did you get it down again? I did mess with it for a bit. You think you could do it tonight? We need a little rehearsal. Okay. Of course, it's a thorny. Very thorny. All right. Um, so here's the big question, since we are right across from the Temple Mount, is what does all this have to do with Judaism? What does God want? I mean, are we allowed to just extrapolate that God created us and we're human beings and we see that human beings that are scared get nowhere, whereas human beings who who get bruised do better? Are we learned from Moses? You know, pushing, pushing limits in his own life or 
Like, how how are we supposed to take this? What, what, what does Judaism say about this? And can we say that conventional Judaism today, what, what I would call post-Enlightenment Judaism, with all the systems, are those systems that are in place, are they built to for order or chaos? Which one? Yeah, it's a massive order. Massive order. Maybe, maybe, uh, maybe one of the last places where you could find such order in the world as the as this the educational system and the observant population. But, but the question is, what does God want? And what does what does Torah say? What does Torah say about order and chaos? What does Torah say about order and chaos in Genesis? There was there was chaos before before there was the world. It was Togu. Yeah. The, the world started with chaos. And, and, uh, and what that chaos was, Togu and Vohu, was that, is uh, if you know, if you study Kabbalah, Togu and Vohu means the mixture of darkness and light. When God said, let there be light, what he was really saying is, let light be and darkness be separated from each other. Let there be order between that. Let it not be just chaotic, of light and dark mixed in together. It's interesting that uh, that people are involved in things like sorcery, black magic, uh, these types of things, and also a lot of pagan ritual is often mixing them, darkness and light together. Jews are particularly sensitive around around these types of people. I know I am very sensitive. If I'm and I'm I'm much more likely than probably most of you to wind up in the presence of someone who's you know just because as a rabbi I and not the average rabbi I wind up often in panels. Of people who are involved in all kinds of other traditions, and whenever I'm around the mixture darkness and light people, so I'm just like, <laughs> I don't want that. We're we're really into purity, and you notice that that um, that Judaism itself calls our physical world, this physical world around us, it's called darkness. This world is called the Olamat Kosher. Our world, our physical world. You know why it's called Olam World of Darkness? Because it was created with what? It was created with light. But if you allow light to just do its thing, so then you get light. If you make the world out of light, what do you get? Light. Which means you never get a world. So how do you ever get a world? And the answer is you've got to filter out the light. And what happens when you filter out light? What do you get? The darkness. So like, for example, you see the light now shining on the board. You can turn this a little, just watch the screen while you turn it. Mm-hmm. Press it into the table, but start turning it. Oh no, you were doing good before. Oh, no, this. Oh, steady it. So if you look at the light on the screen over here, so if I put my hand in the way, you see that the, I've filtered out the light, but it creates the image of my hand in the shadow. So by filtering out light, I get darkness, and that darkness now is an image. And that is exactly how the creation works. The creation of the world works in that God created the world with light, and then filtered it out via these parallel worlds and the metaphysical realms. And all those worlds do is filter out light in order that we can have a physical existence down here. But everything's ultimately made of, of that light. 
So for example, if you can hit the top light switch, you'll notice you would think my, my hand in a sec, yeah, I hit the top switch in a sec, not yet. Um, you would think that the reason my fingers are there are because, you know, the shadow of the fingers are because my hands, they're blocking the light, right? But no, it's also created by light because I'll keep my fingers there and you'll see they'll disappear. Oops, oh, did you hold it down? No, just press it. Okay, but now you see my fingers are gone, but they're still there. So it's not really, even the light, the light's also the darkness. Go ahead, you can turn it on again. And then as the light comes on, so it's pretty interesting because it was the absence of the light that created the image. So you thought it was me causing absence of light was creating it. No, it was the light because everything's made of the light. Everything in, in creation is made of, uh, is made of light. And that mixture of darkness and light and then God separating out the light and then calling it good. And I think that we're all just so used to hearing God call that good, but it's, it's, that's really important that God calls it good. It's really important. You know why it's really important? That God calls it good? Because as a human being, how would you ever know something's good? How would you know something's good? How would you know? Have you thought about that? How do you know something's good? Now, if you're a believer in God and you're a believer in Torah, so we know what's in the Torah, what it says is good is good, and what it says is bad is bad. But how would anyone else know that anything is actually good? And he, and he mentions a lot of things that are good, but we see already that this separation of darkness and light, that it... That it that it's something good, but chaos, that's chaos and order. And it sounds more like the order's good than the chaos. But yet, none of us could grow without the chaos. You're only sitting in this building right now, which is made of order, because the, we had a very chaotic leader named Rav Noah Weinberg. And we should have just minded our own business and stayed in some old building we were living in. And, uh, you know, he made everyone crazy to build this building and threw us all into total chaos. Are you glad that we had a chaotic leader now that you're sitting here? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was good. What do you do when you have a chaotic leader who does all that kind of leading and then he passes away and the next person in control is usually a control person, not a chaos person. They're an order person. Because they're probably the reason they wound up second in command here is because they were really commanding everything from behind the scenes, because the chaotic leader needed somebody who was very ordered behind him. But now you have an organization run by an order person. No growth. No more growth, and then it it just it just dies because it doesn't know how to shed its own skin anymore. Because only a proper leader knows how to shed shed skin. And so uh, it's very interesting that our current Rosh Shiva may live and be well and continue to be Rosh Shiva. Yitzhak Berkowitz understands order and chaos deeply. But he left Asha Torah a few years before the Rosh Shiva passed away. And so we just 
we're stuck without our leader until just now. We're we're about to hold this major event honoring Rav Yitzhak Berkowitz as our new Rosh Hashiva, and he knows about order and chaos. When did Rabbi Weinberg I don't know. Ten years. About ten years. What? That sounds like it's too too far back. Two thousand nine. Two thousand nine. Ten years. Mm-hmm. Can anyone else think of uh, think of where how whether God and Torah is about limitation or is about or is about pushing the limits? Yeah. Because it's but expanding. Like, energy is being put into it to keep it in order. Mm-hmm. That energy that's being put into it to keep it ordered is called Shin Dalit and Yud. Well, yeah, but, you know, <coughs> that's the name of God that keeps the order. Comes from the sun, which is light. What's that? The energy also comes from like Hashem put it into the sun, which is also light. That's not what keeps us from entropy. Uh, anyone else have? Uh, it seems to me that the world seems to be going in the direction of chaos. It means society, society humanity. Society, it just it continually seems to go to chaos at rock bottom. Then it makes its way up with some energy, and then it goes back down to chaos. Now to that, it keeps getting heading towards chaos. Mm-hmm. You know, it also comes out with liberals and conservatives. Conservatives like order; they respect order. They they feel order is important and. And so does everybody else. They just, liberals tend to forget it. It seems to me that there's an energy in the world that naturally goes towards chaos unless she and the youth limits even the chaos. Mm. Well, that's what its job is, to limit the chaos. Limit the chaos. So, the... Oh yeah, conservatives and liberals. Conservatives respect order, and liberals like to tear it down. And and there's a big important place for that for tearing it down. And you'll notice that society is constantly undulating between order and chaos, like you're saying. And so right now, the kind of the liberals have the upper hand, at least in the media. And and, uh, and media is much bigger than televisions today. It's like, you know, it's really very powerful. And it's, it would like its uh, values, or I don't know if the right word is values, because it's, it's getting rid of the values that the conservatives feel is the proper order. And, uh, and so, um, but on the other hand, it's very important to have that liberal voice that, that will tear down order that's calcified. You understand there's an order that's, Calcified in a way that doesn't serve us anymore. For example, um, for example, hierarchies are really important in society. Like, if hierarchies, you know the term. So, like, for example, if let's say you needed surgery on your thumb, and you want the best doctor or you want the the mediocre doctor. Best doctor. Take the best seat. You like hierarchies? Yeah, we like hierarchies. And if someone's working on my car, I'd like the best mechanic before I start driving my car to 
you know, 120 kilometers per hour. So hierarchies are fine, but the hierarchy, it's really important that a hierarchy has to do with, it's a hierarchy of competence. Liberals just want to throw all hierarchy out. But hierarchy is supposed to be a hierarchy of competence. And that's good. That's healthy. We all want it. And the funny thing is, is even the biggest bleeding heart liberal, if they have to get surgery, suddenly throws their whole hierarchy business out the window and, and they just want the best surgeon. And the, and so, but what often happens is that the top of the any the top of any system can gets power. Hierarchy of power is really evil stuff. Worst of most atro- biggest atro- atrocities have taken place because the hierarchy turned into a hierarchy of power instead of competence. And it's likely flips that way, especially when people under the top are less competent. Sorry, when people, yeah, at the top are less competent than the people under them, so they need to start going for the power. I mean, they have to wield power to stay in control, to stay in power. And so they might have gotten there for the right reason. They might have been the most competent, but they can easily shift into, into it being a hierarchy of, of power. Like, for example, Trump could have gotten in, I don't think he was necessarily the hierarchy of competence, but let's just say, let's just say he was, you know. That Trump was the high, he got in the presidency as the hierarchy from a hierarchy of competence. And he did have some business sense, I suppose, after years of running businesses. But so there was competence, but, but, but how easily could that shift to a hierarchy of power in his second term? You know, and, and, then, and then the U.S. is like, you know, whoever got out in time got out in time, and whoever didn't, didn't. Because it goes, things spiral out of control real quick. When, when, there, when you're in a situation where the government's in a hierarchy of power, things go south quick. And they, and they also, they generally, it's, it's usually not safe for Jews in those environments, no matter where you go, for their own reasons. It just never seems, we never seem to do well when governments go, start moving into power mode. And, uh, and maybe that has to do with our own competence, is that we're... Uh, we are the great critic on, of humanity, and when you want to when you want to be involved in power like that, you maybe you want to get rid of your critics. Like uh, like Stalin was very into getting rid of his critics. Millions of people died more more than World War Two. People died under the Soviets and in their power and their extermination of critics. So. And Jews are, you know, extremely critical, dis- distinguishing you know, important distinctions in the world. So, so you could say that the liberals are more the push the limits, and the conservatives are more the keep the, the you know honor the limits. But for all of us, I think the takeaway for this class is that we all need to be balanced between the two. We have to be balanced in the order of life and between the order and the chaos. And we have to we have to dance that dance, which is the order dance and the chaos dance. And, and to be, um, you know, make sure we're growing, but make sure we're not pushing too far out that we, that we are um, losing our sense of security. If you're overly chaotic, you'll lose your security. If you're orderly ordered, you'll lose your zest for life. And so we need to be somewhere around the middle. 
we need to honor the past, the order of the past, and at the same time we need to have the courage to to uh, push through those limits in a way that will make sure that we stay dynamic and vital as a people. So as I started this class, it was all about a false order that was put over us in the narratives of government and rabbis and wanting us all to be kotel focused and, and to forget about the temple man. and the uh, and that's a very order that's kind of a, an order that's not that's not based in reality and, and our job is to we need to to be reality based you know be truthful and in that truth, if enough Jews are truthful about it, maybe we could actually see that basically just rebuilt again, rather than rather than because as long as the Jews are interested in in this, you know, in the kotel, we'll never see the Beit Hamikdash. We're just not going to see it, not in our lifetimes anyway, unless Mashiach just unless we get a freebie from Mashiach. But I think God's kind of watching to see what we're going to do, and. And so this narrative, you know, that's just the Zionist narrative or the or the current rabbinic narrative of the Kotel. It's, it's funny, it kind of looks like the Temple Mount, you know. <laughs> but uh, I think all of the Jewish people have to get outside that narrative and start getting a little bit of uh, pride as Jews. Can you imagine... Uh, can you imagine Washington, D.C.? What's one of the most important buildings in Washington, D.C.? White House. White House. There's something called the Capitol Building. Can you imagine if you got to that, you got the edge of that, and they said, sorry, no Americans. You know, there's a checkpoint. And it's, it says up there, for many of the years I've lived here, it said no Jews on the Temple Mount. But this is this is our capital. There's areas you are allowed. There's certain areas we're allowed, and certainly Arabs aren't in charge of whether we're allowed or not. So it's no, a halachic question. It's a good thing that maybe we're not allowed. Well, it might have been good that Jews who would have probably just walked right into the Dome of the Rock. Yeah. It's probably good if they saw, oh, Jews aren't allowed. I better get out of here. But uh, but for the places you are allowed, the main thing is is just the pride of the nation. You know in. 67, when the Jews got the Temple Mount, they should have just closed it off. Just closed it off so it's not desecrated. You understand? It, it, shouldn't, it should not be the way it is. It should have been just simply closed off. And, um, and, and that would have been much better, much more reverent of such a holy spot. would have been just to close it off. Um, but... Uh, and, and you see how much they paid for that. That came to haunt them. Because the, what, what happened was the Islamic people started moving the Temple Mount into their lore. Like it's a full revisionist. Mm-hmm. You know, like, because there is no mention of Jerusalem in their scriptures. And, and the, uh, they just slowly moved Jerusalem into, the, into their legend. And, and that's just, that's the payment you get when you limit, when you try to create a false narrative that goes against Torah, i.e., Kotel is our, you know, almost icon, the, uh, 
when you try to create that kind of narrative so you pay for it later. And now I'd say the majority of the world who knows anything about the Middle Eastern conflict, the majority of the world would tell you that that Temple Mount's theirs. And in fact, they themselves have, they themselves have, um, have a whole claim that it's, I mean, I guess you know that. They claim it's theirs. The Temple And that's just, if you know any history, that's the most ridiculous thing ever to claim. I mean, that is an absolute, total sh- sham. It's a revisionist sham. And and the uh, I forget there was one more cool thing that happened, but I can't remember. Something happened historically with the Temple Mount. I, 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 there was they just got nervous and made a big stink one time with the Temple Mount. I forget what it was, and uh, and then it hit the news. This oh, whole because we put um, we put metal detectors. No, I'm talking about before, like, I'm talking about like 20 years ago. 20 years ago, like, the Arabs went crazy on the Temple Mount over something. It was temporary. It was oh, like, there were like riots. And then. In front of the petrol station, and they said, like, you know. And that was part of the Intifada. Anyways, way before that. But there were like riots going on in the Temple Mount over the Jewish claim of the Temple Mount. But you realize what happened there is, is every Reform, conservative, and Orthodox synagogue in the world in school had to explain about the Temple Mount. And they, you, have to, you have to get that, that reformed conservative Temple Mount. Like, remember, we grew up in Sinai. Yeah? Sinai. It's called Sinai, not Sinai. Mm-hmm. So we grew up in Sinai Temple. And, and the... And did they ever mention the Temple Mount in our entire education? Never. Not a... Never, never uttered once, not on one Rosh Hashanah, not on one Yom Kippur, not on one nothing. You learned about the rabbinic Jewish 2,000 years of history with the wise men of Chelm. <laughs> <laughs> That's all we did. Anyway, Temple Mount was deleted from, from Israeli vernacular and from Reform Conservative. Like, Temple Mount's not part of the Jewish world. And even the observant community, it's something you pray for, but that's about it. It's something you pray for. You pray for Beit HaMikdash. And, and though, who, how did it get back on everyone's agenda? Why did every Hebrew school teacher in the reform movement have to talk about it? Because the Arabs rioted and it showed up on international news. And those riots that they had, I think like, I think, oh, you know what happened? There were, the Arabs were riding up there and the IDF sent four soldiers up there and they turned on the soldiers and started stoning them to death. And the soldiers were like, well, what are we supposed to do? They couldn't even use their radios to find out, like, what do we do? And they, they shot their way out to save their own lives. Killed 19 Arabs. That's what happened. They killed 19 Muslims on the Temple Mount. Not taking pot shots, meaning they were getting stoned and being stoned to death because they weren't going to use their weapons because they didn't have any orders to. And then they realized, we're going to die here. And they just, to preserve their own lives without any orders, they just shot their way until they could get out. And then ran, ran. They didn't just keep shooting. They could have, if it was up to them, they could have just kept shooting. They would have shot, you know, 2,000 of them. They just shot till they were free off the Temple Mount. That hit international news, and for the first time, reform teachers and synagogue leaders had to speak about the Temple Mount for the first time ever. And the Arabs made it happen. 
They, they, they did it to themselves. But of course, then their narrative built and built and built, and now we're in this crazy stalemate. Okay, everyone, shalom. Uh, Today was a really weird class, so I guess only my Darhard students are going to be interested in this class. uh, You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.